Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of February 26, 1993, a 34-year-old man went to a gas station in Jersey City and filled up the tank of a rental van. Then he and three other men drove the yellow Econoline van and another vehicle through the Holland Tunnel into New York City. Around noon, they entered a parking garage beneath the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. Traveling down to B2, they parked the van in an illegal spot on a ramp. Then they sped off in the second vehicle. And as they headed back to New Jersey, a 1,200-pound urea nitrate bomb inside the rental van detonated, blasting a crater 200 feet wide and six stories deep. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at an event that marked the beginning of a new era of terrorism in the United States and foreshadowed much worse things to come. This is the story of the World Trade Center bombing. As far back as the 1980s, CIA agents placed the World Trade Center near the top of a list of potentially vulnerable sites that could be high-value terrorist strike points. The main reason was the number of people who either worked at or visited the Twin Towers on a daily basis. In the 90s, that number was up around 100,000 people a day. But even still, when news of an explosion in the underground garage broke on the snowy afternoon of February 26, 1993, a bomb wasn't necessarily the first thing people thought of. I remember when it occurred, the bombing, people thought, oh, it was maybe a transformer in the bottom of the building that blew up. So it, it wasn't even something naturally in the consciousness of the United States population at that time. That's John Parakini, a senior international and defense researcher at the RAND Intelligence Policy Center. It's an American think tank that offers research and analysis to the United States Armed Forces. He says that at the beginning of the 90s, international terrorism had yet to find its way onto American soil. There had been a number of terrorist attacks in Europe that had caught the attention of, of many uh, uh, American citizens because there had been American citizens killed. But the difference was it was always on somebody else's country. It wasn't on our shores. And that's the real uh, startling aspect. When the bomb detonated in the World Trade Center parking garage, the catastrophic explosion was felt far and wide. The ceiling in a nearby subway station came crashing down, showering chunks of concrete on unsuspecting commuters waiting on the platform. Lobby windows in the Trade Center concourse exploded onto the plaza, and marble slabs fell from the wall. Fractured steam pipes launched jets of hot mist into the air, and fires quickly broke out, causing thick, acrid smoke to fill up stairwells and elevator shafts. Electricity went out, and both towers swayed visibly as the force of the blast shuddered upward. A 25-year-old worker on the 105th floor said he and his colleagues felt the explosion. And in the same instant, the computers and phones shut down. Then all of a sudden, they saw smoke everywhere. 
In a panic, some people broke windows to let in air from the outside. But that caused a chimney effect that drew smoke upwards even faster. It was a living nightmare. Over the next 11 hours, 50,000 people were evacuated from the Twin Towers. They made their way down smoke-filled stairwells, pouring out onto the streets, coughing and covered in soot. A woman in a wheelchair was carried down 66 flights by two friends. A choir of kindergartners descended down the stairs from the 107th floor after being stuck in an elevator for five hours. Nearly 30 people with medical conditions were taken to the roof, including a pregnant woman who went into labor. After several hours, they were scooped to safety by police helicopters. At least a thousand people were taken to hospital with injuries ranging from smoke inhalation to broken bones. Amazingly though, no one in the towers died. However, six people who were in the basement when the bomb exploded did not escape. 61-year-old Bob Kirkpatrick, 47-year-old Stephen Knapp, and 57-year-old Bill Mako all worked as mechanical supervisors for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which owned the World Trade Center. They, along with Mako's secretary, Monica Rodriguez-Smith, were having lunch in their basement office adjacent to the parking garage when the bomb exploded. Smith was nine months pregnant, and it was her final day at work before going on maternity leave. She, along with her Port Authority colleagues, were killed instantly. So was 37-year-old Wilfred Mercado. He worked at the windows on the World Restaurant atop the North Tower. When the bomb exploded, he was in the basement checking in food deliveries. His wife stood vigil outside the Twin Towers for 17 days until rescue crews finally managed to recover her husband's body from the rubble. The sixth person killed was 45-year-old John DiGiovanni, a dental salesman who had just pulled into the parking garage when the explosion occurred. John Parachini says no one near the bomb had a chance of survival when it detonated. And a quick warning, these details are graphic. And it did at a, an explosive power that was so great that a speck of paint off of the wall hit one of the people in the nearby room near where the car was so quickly that investigators discovered it on the person's eyeball. The person didn't even have time to blink from when the explosion occurred. It didn't take long for investigators to determine the explosion was caused by a bomb. The size of the crater, the intense heat, as well as traces of nitrate found at the edges of the blast crater, all suggested the explosion was the work of a terrorist. Determining who was responsible and why they had targeted the World Trade Center was a much more difficult job. In the first 24 hours after the attack, police received calls from at least 19 different individuals or organizations claiming responsibility. Many of the calls were made by people claiming to be affiliated with Balkan groups who wanted revenge against countries for interfering in the Bosnian War, which had been raging for over a year. Just a week earlier, U.S. President Bill Clinton had approved an airdrop of relief supplies over Bosnia, which some speculated may have angered the Serbs. And there was another working theory being tossed around by officials behind the scenes and by the media. 
They speculated it was possible the attack was carried out by Iraqi terrorists at the direction of President Saddam Hussein in retaliation for the first Gulf War. Meanwhile, investigators on the scene continued to comb through mounds of rubble and debris, looking for clues that would help solve the horrific crime. John Parachini says, amazingly, it took only 48 hours for investigators to make a major discovery. They found a little scrap of metal that had the uh, VIN number of the van, and it was from that, that that they were able to trace it back to where they had rented the van. Turns out the van was rented two days before the bombing from a rider rental agency in Jersey City. The man who rented the vehicle reported it stolen later that same day. That man's name was Mohammed Salameh. Salem, the guy who had rented the van, kept going back to that rental car place in order to try and get the deposit money back. Uh, Presumably because he wanted to then get out of the country. But he went back twice. And the second time, the FBI was there waiting for him. Following Salome's arrest, officials indicated that he likely did not act alone. In Washington, the acting U.S. Attorney General and FBI Director said further arrests are expected. No man is an island, or, or woman for that matter, and that there are, we're, we're concerned always about other individuals, if not associates or whatever else. A New York TV station says the suspect is connected to a Muslim extremist group linked to the 1990 killing of radical rabbi Meir Kahani. He was gunned down outside a Manhattan hotel. After Salome's arrest, investigators searched his apartment and found information that led to the arrest of three other men, Ahmed Ajaj, Nidal Ayad, and Mahmoud Abulima. A fifth suspect, Abdul Yassin, was also interviewed by police, but released due to a lack of evidence. Around the same time, the FBI received a tip from someone who worked at a storage locker company, which led them to another important discovery. Inside a storage locker that had been rented by Mohammed Salame, the same man who rented the van, agents found chemicals that could be used to manufacture explosives, including urea, nitric acid, sulfuric acid, and according to the FBI, enough cyanide gas to wipe out a town. Evidence was mounting against the men, and details of how they had pulled off the shocking attack at the World Trade Center was becoming clearer. But there was one major problem. The man believed to be the mastermind of the plot had fled the country within hours of the explosion and was nowhere to be found. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ramzi Ahmed Youssef was born in Kuwait in 1968 to Pakistani and Palestinian parents. He studied to be an electrical engineer in the UK, returning to Kuwait after completing his degree. Then in 1990, when Iraq invaded the tiny country, he left, making his way to Afghanistan, where he honed his skills at a terrorist training camp. In September 1992, Yusuf fled to the United States, landing in New York City with a Pakistani passport. He was accompanied by Ahmed Ajaj, 
They both carried with them bomb-making manuals and had a singular goal of bombing a target on American soil. John Parakini says Ramzi Youssef was a shadowy character whose real identity was a bit of a mystery. And he lived his life, as we pick up the story in 1993, with more than 12 aliases. Once arriving in the U.S., Youssef quickly began planning his attack, selecting the World Trade Center as his target. He moved to a rooming house in Jersey City, where he met several men who were persuaded to join his plot. He could be very charming and very engrossing as people talked with him. And he thought of himself very highly. He was a very confident man. And he could essentially charm or persuade or manipulate people with whom he came encounter with. Yusuf and the men he met all attended a mosque in Jersey City that was led by Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. Abdel Rahman was a Muslim cleric born in an Egyptian village along the Nile in 1938. He lost his eyesight due to childhood diabetes and as a result was often referred to as the blind Sheikh. As an adult living in Egypt, he became associated with a fundamentalist Islamic group that assassinated the country's president, Anwar Sadat, in 1981. Abdul Rahman was arrested in connection with the assassination, but was acquitted in 1990. He then managed to move to the U.S., despite being on the State Department's list of people with ties to terror groups. Once in the States, the Sheikh began preaching his radical message at mosques in Brooklyn and Jersey City. Doing that, he built a strong following among fundamentalist Muslims. With his long gray beard, sunglasses, and red and white clerical cap, the charismatic Abdul Rahman became the face of radical Islam in the 1980s and 1990s, years before Osama bin Laden would claim that position. Abdul Rahman preached a fiery brand of Islam that called for the overthrow of U.S. allies in the Middle East, namely in Egypt and Israel. Through his sermons, he advocated for the death and destruction of people and governments he disapproved of. His following was tied to several fundamentalist killings and bomb attacks around the world, including the murder of a militant rabbi in New York. In November 1990, Mer Kahane, who advocated for the removal of all Arabs from Israeli-held territory, gave a speech to about 60 people at a Zionist meeting at a Manhattan hotel. Shortly after 9 p.m., as Kahane answered questions from the podium, a gunman who sat through the speech stood up, took aim, and fired a gun twice from a distance of about four feet. Kahane was hit once in the neck and died later in hospital. An Egyptian-American man was arrested in connection with the murder, and when police searched his apartment, they found a sermon from Sheikh Abdel Rahman that urged followers to, among other things, attack the edifices of capitalism. To say that the World Trade Center would qualify as an edifice of capitalism is probably stating the obvious. The majestic Twin Towers stood in clear view of Abdul Rahman's followers in Jersey City. They simply had to look across the Hudson River and would see dozens of such buildings. But John Parakini isn't convinced that's the only reason the World Trade Center was chosen as a target by Ramzi Youssef. Did they choose the World Trade Towers because they had that kind of world scope? Um, maybe, but there is a certain operational element to what they did do. And that underground garage, there were not many um, uh, 
buildings in New York that had that underground garage and they really wanted to kill as many people as possible. So I think it was more practical than symbolic. The fact that the underground garage was vulnerable to a bomb attack was something that had already been flagged for the Port Authority. Following a series of bombings around New York City in the mid-80s, a task force was set up to review the safety of the World Trade Center. In 1985, it recommended that the garage be closed to the public for safety reasons. The Port Authority chose not to implement that recommendation, so on the day of February 26, 1993, Ramzi Youssef and his men were able to drive into the garage with ease. They haphazardly parked the rental van packed with explosives on the second level between the North Tower and a hotel. Then they lit four 20-foot fuses that detonated the massive bomb. Right away, it was clear that the location of the bomb was picked to cause maximum damage to the infrastructure of the World Trade Center, and thereby killing the maximum number of people. In fact, Yusuf's main goal was to cause one of the Twin Towers to fall and knock out the other tower on its way down, something that seemed an impossibility in 1993. When the four men accused in the case went on trial later that fall, security was tight at the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan. Anyone entering the third-floor courtroom had to pass through a gauntlet of plainclothes security officers, bomb-sniffing dogs, and a bank of metal detectors. Inside the wood-paneled room, six court officers flanked the doorway, and several more stood sentry over the accused who sat at a long table with their lawyers. The lead prosecutor on the case was driven back and forth to court in an unmarked sedan with tinted windows and steel-reinforced doors. That's because before the trial had even started, threats had been made against Assistant U.S. Attorney Gilmore Childers. As a result, he and his family were moved to an undisclosed location throughout the trial. During opening statements on October 4, 1993, Childers revealed for the first time the government's theory on what motivated the men to carry out the attack. Childers told the court that the bombing was part of a war of terrorism on the United States in retaliation for the nation's support of Israel. He also stated that a letter delivered to the New York Times four days after the bombing, which claimed responsibility for the attack, could be tied to one of the accused. That's because a copy of the letter, which warned of future attacks if the U.S. didn't stop interfering in the Middle East, was found by investigators on the computer of Nadal Ayad, a 25-year-old chemical engineer. His DNA was also found on the envelope the letter was delivered in. In March 1994, following nearly five months of complicated and sometimes tedious testimony and evidence, The federal jury convicted all four men on multiple charges, including conspiracy and destruction of government property. Immediately after the jury forewoman spoke the word guilty 38 times, Nadal Ayad, the man who had sent the letter to the New York Times, shouted in Arabic, victory to Islam. Two other defendants began crying out, Allah is great. And one of them began shouting insults at the jury and the judge. Security guards quickly converged on the men and hustled them out of the courtroom. Friends of those killed and injured in the blast welcome the news. I think it's great. It sends a message that terrorists in this country will not will not be uh, tolerated. I feel very happy right now. And finally, the souls that the deceased can rest in peace, I feel. When the four men returned to court two months later in May 1994 for sentencing, each received a prison sentence of 240 years. 
Even though this particular case was closed, investigators were still hunting for the man considered to be the mastermind of the bombing. Ramsey Youssef was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list shortly after the bombing in April 1993. But more than a year later, he had still eluded capture. On the evening of the World Trade Center attack, Youssef had actually boarded a plane for Pakistan, where he continued his campaign of terror. Several months after arriving in the country, he was involved in a plot to assassinate Benazir Bhutto, the Prime Minister of Pakistan. When it failed, Yusuf fled to Thailand, where he coordinated a failed plot to bomb the Israeli embassy in Bangkok. While Yusuf was not successful in carrying out those particular terrorist acts, he was involved in other deadly incidents, including the bombing of a Shiite shrine in Iran, which killed 26 people, and another bombing on board a Philippines airline plane that killed one passenger and injured several others. The bombing on board the Philippines plane was said to be a test bomb, for a larger plan to blow up 12 United States airlines in Asia. In January 1995, Yusuf returned to Pakistan and tried to enlist the help of another man in yet another terrorist attack. But this time, the man alerted authorities. And on February 7, 1995, Yusuf was arrested in his hotel room. The search was finally over. Secret Service agents were sent to escort Yusuf back to America. And on the plane ride back, Yusuf revealed that he initially wanted to use chemical weapons in the World Trade Center attack. And Ramsey Yosef tells the Secret Service agent who debriefs him on the plane flight back from Pakistan that, you know, he would have if he could have, but it was expensive and he was running out of time. So again, there's a practical focus. They're ultimately kind of like portfolio managers. They size up the risks and the time and the cost and what's possible, and they act upon it accordingly. In November 1997, Ramsey Youssef was convicted for his role directing and helping carry out the deadly plot. Ayad Ismail, who stood trial with Youssef and was accused of being the driver of the rental van, was also found guilty. Ismail, who was arrested in Jordan in 1995, claimed that he unwittingly planted the bomb in the underground garage, saying he was told he was actually delivering a shipment of shampoo. In contrast to the bedlam that erupted in the courtroom following the verdicts of the other four men, Yusuf and Ismail stared ahead silently as the jury forewoman announced their guilty verdicts. Both Ismail and Yusuf were each sentenced to 240 years in prison. At the time of his conviction, the New York Times called Yusuf the most ambitious and visible member of a new generation of terrorists, saying he had taken over the role from the terrorist known as Carlos the Jackal. The Venezuelan militant killed 83 people in the 1970s in a series of hijackings, kidnappings, and assassinations for the Palestinian militant organization known as Black September. The Times said Yusuf personified a generation of devoutly religious Middle Eastern operatives, many of whom, like him, were trained in battle alongside the United States-backed Mujahideen during the Afghanistan war. Unlike terrorists in the 70s who were part of disciplined, tightly organized groups with specific aims, like attaining land or getting political prisoners released, Yusuf and his type were part of a new world that included a hodgepodge of extremist cells with the broad goal of punishing the U.S. 
Oliver B. Revel, who led the FBI's investigations division, told the New York Times at the time, this new breed of terrorists wants nothing less than the overthrow of the West. And since that's not going to happen, they just want to punish. The more casualties, the better. Despite this knowledge back in the 1990s, John Parachini says government and law enforcement didn't respond appropriately. In particular, he says an important opportunity was missed following the arrest of Sheikh Abdelrahman in 1995. He and several followers were implicated in a plan that would have caused a day of terror in the U.S. with assassinations and synchronized bombings in Manhattan and New Jersey. I mean, one of the interesting things is when uh, Sheikh Omar Rahman is arrested, the FBI collects up a bunch of materials that they then put in a box and it gets labeled Islamic stuff. Well, in that box of mainly Arabic material that was not translated were lots of discussions about attacking the World Trade Center, drawings about big buildings in New York, and, and here we're in the early 90s. It's before 9-11. Whether or not this was a missed opportunity that might have stopped Osama bin Laden from carrying out the atrocity committed six years later in 2001 is impossible to say. But John believes a lot more could have been done to understand what terrorists like Ramzi Youssef and Omar Abdelrahman were possible of. That they had a number of targets in New York City, including the World Trade Tower, on their screen as possible things to attack was discoverable if we had had the presence of mind to not just label it as Islamic stuff and put it aside, but actually really trying to understand where are these people coming from? What's their worldview? Uh, recognizing it's different than ours. They have this profound sense of grievance. How might they act upon it? In October 1995, the man known as the Blind Sheikh was convicted for his role in planning what prosecutors called a broader war of urban terrorism. While incarcerated, he remained a spiritual leader for radical Muslims, including Osama bin Laden, who a year before the 9-11 attacks pledged a jihad or holy war to free Abdelrahman from prison. In 2017, Abdelrahman died of natural causes in a North Carolina prison at the age of 78. Today, the other men convicted in the World Trade Center bombing, including Ramzi Youssef, all remain behind bars. Youssef, who is kept in solitary confinement at the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado, has a strict list of rules imposed against him, including limited contact with relatives, lawyers, and other inmates. He can read books and watch television, but newspapers and magazines are censored to keep him from receiving messages planted in classified ads or letters to the editor. A seventh alleged conspirator, Abdul Yassin, who fled the United States in March 1993 after police interviewed him and let him go, remains at large to this day. In the years following the bombing, survivors and family members of those who died found themselves fighting for compensation and even recognition of their loved ones' deaths. After 9-11, the federal government moved quickly to set up a compensation fund for the victims paying out more than $7 billion to victims, family members, and injured survivors. But the government did not pay out a single penny to those whose lives were upended by the 1993 terror bombing. In 2005, survivors and family members sued the Port Authority over the blast. The court ruled the Port Authority was negligent in the bombing 
because it failed to implement recommendations to end public access to the underground garage. But the state's highest court ultimately reversed the decision, determining that the Port Authority was not liable for damages. The majority of plaintiffs had already reached a settlement by then, though a handful wound up with nothing. Two years after the blast in 1995, a granite fountain built to memorialize the six people who died was unveiled in the World Trade Center Plaza, directly above the part of the parking garage where the bomb exploded. Six and a half years later, the fountain was obliterated when the Twin Towers collapsed on 9-11. Today, John D. Giovanni, Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen Knapp, William Macko, Wilfred Mercado, and Monica Rodriguez-Smith, along with her unborn child, are remembered on the 9-11 memorial at the World Trade Center site. Their names are inscribed in bronze on panel N-73, alongside the thousands of names of those killed on 9-11. Thanks for listening to this look at a terrifying moment from the 1990s. And thank you to John Parachini for sharing his knowledge and expertise. If you'd like to hear my entire interview with John, head over to www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s. That's where subscribers always get access to uncut interviews. History of the 90s is also on social media. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at that 90s podcast. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. And a special thanks to Rosalind Kafour for her help on this episode. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 